Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 11, 1-3, and 39-40. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were recommended for. By faith we, underst- we understand that The universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, You know, the idea of faith is sometimes a contentious one. And the reason being is that there are those who would believe that a person cannot be a person of both reason and faith at the same time. And since our passage notes that faith is, quote, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, some would say and some believe that people of faith are not rooted in reality, but critics of religion might say that we're rooted in fairy tales or or some kind of uh, made-up belief to make ourselves feel better about so many things that we don't understand about the world. But are faith and reason really at odds with one another? I mean, I think it's fair to say that no, they are not at odds with one another, that one can hold to the realities of scientific inquiry and rational thought and also believe that there is this transcendent reality that exists outside of that which inquiry, scientific inquiry or rational thought, uh, can understand. Now, George Ladd, uh, a well-known New Testament scholar, uh, he said this about faith, and it speaks to both this idea of this tension between rational thought, but also what it looks like to have a biblically informed faith. He says this, He says that faith is the faculty to perceive the reality of the unseen world of God and to make it the primary object of one's life in contrast to the transitory and often evil character of present human existence. He goes on to say that the person of faith is the one who does not consider the visible world of human experience to be the world of ultimate values. In other words, faith does not keep us from deeply considering the realities of human experience, but rather it helps us make sense of human experience by helping us understand that there are greater values, ultimate values that exist outside of our experience, our limited understanding. Now, faith allows us to see something beyond what is immediately in front of us, to see that which could otherwise only be understood by God himself. Faith is not some uh, blind trust that is unhinged from what is taking place right now. Rather, faith is trusting that what is happening in the immediate is leading to something greater. And here in Hebrews 11, we see a group of people who did just that. 
They were able to see beyond the immediate and they trusted that something was happening beyond what they could possibly understand. And as a result, they were given what they'd always longed for. Now, in our passage, uh, I read only a, a short uh, snippet of Hebrews 11. But Hebrews 11 is actually a, a, a long chapter describing a bunch of different people who throughout biblical history had faith. And what I want to do, I want to look at them. And I want to look at their faith and what made it worthy of noting here in chapter 11. Uh, what I hope that we are able to see is that it really does. Their faith brings incredible insights into what it means to actually experience salvation, restoration, redemption, justification, and in particular to experience what Ephesians 2 notes, and I'll be referencing Ephesians 2 numerous times today, that we are saved by grace through faith. And so what I want to do is I want to consider what that means. What does it mean to experience grace through faith? By taking a look at the faith described here in Hebrews 11. And we're going to do that through th in three ways. We're going to look at the people of faith, the scandalous stories of faith, and then the true object of faith. Let's consider that together. So first, uh, a people of faith. Here in Hebrews 11, we see, again, a list of Old Testament characters. Again, I didn't, I didn't read them all. It would have taken a while to read through all of their, uh, their stories there. Uh, but they're all commended for their faith, and that that faith is what made them ultimately righteous before God. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, one thing that I, one question that has come up for many in Hebrews 11 is simply this, is were Old Testament followers of Yahweh, were they saved? And the short answer to that question is yes. That they were a regenerate people in the sense that, uh, you know, in Jesus' words in John 3, they were born again, or as Ephesians 2 tells us, that they were dead in their sin, but by grace through faith they were raised up. That there is this one salvation that's accomplished by one means, which is faith. And Hebrews 11 really emphasizes that point. That even though this list of people in Hebrews 11, even though they lived before Christ, salvation came through faith in the work of Jesus. Of course, the question then becomes, how can someone believe in Jesus if Jesus had not yet come, what is the author of Hebrews trying to communicate exactly here then? Well, it is true that Jesus had not yet come for those that, that, that are listed here in Hebrews 11. Uh, the work that would be completed by Jesus uh, was very much at work, though. Even though he had not yet come, his work had already begun in the people of God even before he came. See, throughout Hebrews, we are reminded of the Old Covenant laws and the sacrifices associated with the Old Testament. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5 that he has come to fulfill the law, there might be some assumptions that God established the law 
And then as a result, Jesus came to then fulfill it. And while maybe in some sense that's true, that doesn't actually fully get to God's intent with the law. Rather, the entire law and sacrificial system of the Old Testament was created as a foreshadowing or a type of Jesus. So the kings of Israel were given to the people of God in Israel to cause them to long for Jesus as king. The prophets were given to the people to speak the word of God because this was creating a longing for Jesus who was the very word of God, as John 1 tells us. The priests and the sacrificial system were given to create a longing for the true high priest, an all-sufficient sacrifice. See, those, even before Jesus came, those who trusted in God's law and his sacrifice were trusting in a foreshadowed Jesus, even if they didn't know him specifically by name. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet speaks of a new covenant, a covenant we now know to be fulfilled in Jesus. However, the people of God trusted in that covenant even before Jesus, a covenant in which God promises, uh, he says this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, the work of Jesus in which we put our faith is the same work that they trusted in, even if they didn't have all the information yet. And so all of that together is our belief that there is one people of God who has existed across generations, all of whom have looked to the Messiah, Jesus, in faith. And so the followers of Yahweh in the Old Testament, through a blurry lens, looked to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus for their salvation by faith. Followers of Jesus in the New Testament, with a less blurry lens, also look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, looking at it from different uh, points in redemptive history, and yet looking to the cross and resurrection nonetheless. We are all one people. There is one faith trusting in the person and work of Jesus. This is why in verses 39 and 40, it says that these were all commended for their faith, those that had just been listed. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I mean, that, that passage just blows my brain. That we are deeply tied with them. That they are deeply tied with us. For the work of Jesus only makes sense to us to the extent that it's rooted in the Old Testament covenant and all that they experienced in the Old Testament. And for them, the Old Covenant and Old Testament promises only make sense to the extent that they had faith in what would be accomplished in the New Covenant with the coming of Jesus. And so I, I frame all of that for this reason, that the people listed here in Hebrews 11 are not some disconnected group of people that we can't quite identify with. Rather, Christians really ought to see them. Christians now ought to see them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They are part of the family in that sense. If you are a Christian, their stories are the stories of your faith family. 
But here's the challenge of that, and here's why I drive it home. The problem is that there are some seriously scandalous stories listed here. Now, again, I didn't print everything uh, in chapter 11. Again, I would highly recommend that you go back and read it. But essentially, the chapter 11 presents to us various stories of some very well-known Old Testament Bible figures. Uh, the author mentions uh, people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Joseph uh, and Moses and Rahab and Samuel and David and Gideon and Samson, all these people uh, that we may know. And then there's some uh, who are lesser known, people like Barak and Jephthah. Uh, but what the author does is as he lists all of these people, he emphasizes their faith. Now, I've said this uh, a couple of times in the series, but on the one hand, the book of Hebrews uh, is like all of Scripture in the sense that it's simple enough for a child to understand. Right? This passage is about faith and how we too should also have faith, and so in that way it's simple. Uh, but on the other hand, the book of Hebrews is also like Ph.D. level reading. And by that I mean that every word and every reference is packed with meaning and reference uh, if, if we were to consider carefully the depths of the meaning that, uh, that is within this passage in particular in Hebrews 11, it would take us you know, a year to slowly go through it all. And it, to show the extent to which the author is making the point that justification and righteousness come by faith and not by works. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Here is what's striking to me about the list of people that are, he that are listed out in uh, Hebrews 11 is that the stories of those being commended, again, are scandalous stories. And what I mean is that each person listed is not listed as an exemplar of one that we should emulate, except for the fact that they had faith. In fact, these men and women were incredibly flawed individuals, some of whom had no redeeming qualities uh, at all listed in Scripture, except for the fact that they had faith. Uh, you have some who are listed, who at least in the biblical narrative, uh, generally are viewed positive. There's a few that are here, like Abel and Enoch, for example. But most of those listed are, again, scandalous individuals. I mean, Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a coward who was willing to essentially sell his wife in order to save himself. Uh, Sarah mocked the promises of God. Moses was barred from entering into the promised land. Gideon doubted God's su sufficiency for victory. David, King David, was a rapist and a murderer. And though he repented, he set into motion events that would divide the kingdom of Israel. I mean, these were deeply troubled, complicated, flawed people. And these are the people that we generally think about in good terms even though they were really broken. But then you have other people on this list who by all accounts should not be on the list at all. There are very few, if any, redeeming qualities about them. Particularly, I think about uh, Samson and Jephthah. You know, each of them, they were both judges in Israel. And judges were essentially rulers of Israel before there were kings in Israel. And these two judges were deeply disturbed and broken men. You know, Samson, you may know the story, but he was lust-filled, he was impulsive, he was violent. 
Jephthah was also a, an impulsive man who committed one of the most heinous acts in all of Scripture. If you know his story, he was commissioned to lead the people of Israel against their enemy, the Ammonites. And Jephthah vows that when he, if he returns in victory, that he would sacrifice to the Lord the first thing that walked through his door. Now he goes off, he is victorious, and when he returns, his daughter is the first one to come through the door. And this guy is so delusional that he thinks he is now obligated to keep that vow by sacrificing his daughter, even though God, in his law, strictly forbids human sacrifice, and yet he does it. He actually sacrifices his daughter. What in the world is he doing on this list? Were there not better judges to reference? Judges like Ehud or even Deborah. I mean, they were far better people. What is happening in this passage? Well, the author is using a very wide range of people to emphasize the far reaches of God's grace and the transformative nature of faith and the extent to which we contribute nothing to our salvation. And as one people of God, these Old Testament figures like Jephthah are part of the family of faith. No matter how good or how bad a person might be on this list, they are, according to Hebrews 11, a brother, a sister. That really pushes us to consider the far reaches of grace through faith. You know, there are men and women in, in faith who I look up to and I feel like I could never be as good as them. Maybe you too have people like that. They are more humble, more loving, more courageous. They seem to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit more fully than me, and I wish I could be like them. In that sense, I look up to them. There are people like that in the family of faith. Of course, on the flip side, there are also men and women who, even though I might not admit it internally, I, I believe that I'm better than them. I believe that I am more humble, I am more loving, I am more courageous, that I exhibit the fruit of the Spirit more than them. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But you know what Hebrews 11 tells us? Regardless of whether or not we look up to people or we look down on people, Hebrews 11 makes clear that we are all equal. That whether your life has been an exemplar for generations or if you've made a disaster of your life, we all stand before God with equal footing. And the only thing that will make us righteous before him is faith. And this is why grace through faith is so scandalous. It is scandalous because God's grace and the faith that brings that grace reaches further than you and I could fathom or even find appropriate. Why? Because we often believe that some people are more deserving of grace than others. And that faith should not be the standard. Rather, we should have to prove our marriage for grace, to receive grace. But here's the tension. When we look out into the world, what we do is this. We categorize people into a spectrum of good and bad people. 
That's what we naturally do. And of course, we all want to put ourselves, usually, more on the side of the good people. We don't want to categorize ourselves on the bad side of people. But here's, here's the issue. When God looks out into the world, he does not categorize people in the same kinds of way. Because when God looks out into the world, he does not see good people. I mean, as uh, Psalm 14 and Romans 3 tells us, that no one is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. And together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So when God looks out into the world, he doesn't see that full spectrum of good and bad. He sees that no one does good. And so for some, maybe the immediate question is, what about our good deeds and our attempts at trying to merit grace? We do good things. We are good people. Well, Isaiah 64 tells us that all, even all of our righteous acts, all of our good deeds are like filthy rags before God when we use those good deeds as a way of trying to merit his grace. They're failures. Even those who understand the gospel of grace still functionally believe that there is a direct correlation between our worthiness of salvation and our achievements and goodness. And the Bible time and time again says, no, that is not Christianity. Christianity is laying down that entire paradigm and instead coming completely empty-handed before God with nothing but our faith. Now, I also know that there are some who push against this idea that God will welcome anyone that if they just have faith, no matter what they've done. And for you, the whole idea is a scandalous idea, that God would just welcome someone if they were to put their faith in him. And you know what? You're right. It's scandalous. It's a scandalous idea. Many years ago, um, I, was, I remember being on a, the boardwalk of Ocean City, Maryland, uh, with my, my wife, and we had brought a... a I was a youth pastor, and so we, we had this youth group trip down to, um, to Ocean City where we were doing a missions trip. And uh, during that time, we had some good old-fashioned street preaching uh, there on the boardwalk. And I remember after one of the mini sermons, uh, a woman came up, and she'd, she'd been listening, and she came up, and she said, my daughter was murdered. Are you really telling me that the murderer, all he has to do is have faith to be forgiven. That's terrible. I could never accept that as being okay. And her, her thinking there, it always, it struck me and it stuck with me. Why? Because she's right. That seems really unjust. It seems really unjust for there to be sin that does not go unpunished. That faith then becomes what merits someone grace especially someone in a situation like hers, I can see and understand why that would seem so incredibly wrong. We are so often trained to believe that to do unrighteous deeds, but then be treated well and rewarded for those deeds, that that's unjust. And I agree, it's unjust. You do unrighteous things, you do not deserve to be rewarded. Or, the flip side, we would also say that it seems incredibly unjust to do righteous deeds, but then find yourself being punished. That that's unjust. And I would agree 
You should not be punished for doing good things. But when we think about how God rewards and how God understands righteousness, when we think about God rewarding others who have not met our standard of righteousness, we don't like that at all. That is why understanding grace through faith requires us to consider the object of faith. Because if we do not consider the object of our faith that then brings that grace, everything that we've been talking about, how God gives grace through faith, really does become unjust. So let's consider now the object of faith. You know, to the point about about justice. I mean, isn't it the case that if God is to be just, he must then punish the sins of the wicked? You know, how do you have a just judge who is not willing to pronounce judgment on those who are worthy of that judgment? I mean, is it fair that anyone can do whatever and only then, as a result of faith, be absolved? Is that fair for that to be the case? How do people like Jephthah end up on a list of a heroes of faith because he had faith? That just doesn't seem right. And again, you're right. If God did not punish the sins of the wicked, he would be unjust. You know, the drunkenness of Noah that led him into evil, the cowardice of Abraham, the rape and murder committed by David, the lust of Samson, the human sacrifice of Jephthah. And if you were to fast forward to the New Testament, you have figures uh, like Paul who persecuted Christians. You have uh, the apostle Peter who was a racist and many others who fell into deplorable sins. Those sins must be punished by God or God is unjust. But here's the beauty of grace through faith, is that grace is received because those sins have been punished. Grace comes by faith in Jesus because the punishment that we rightly deserved for our sin for our unrighteousness, that punishment is given to Jesus. Jesus takes it upon himself. God is not unjust, but rather he is more just than we could possibly fathom. God takes sin so seriously and the wickedness of this world so seriously that he sends his son, Jesus, the eternal son of God, God in the flesh, to take that punishment for sin. Jesus died for the sins of everyone listed in Hebrews 11 because they had faith in him to do so. And that is why they are commended here. That is the only reason they are listed. They are not listed for any other thing that they accomplished except for the fact that they had faith. No other reason, period. And I'd encourage you with this. If you balk at the idea of grace, it is because we ourselves have either viewed ourselves as being too far from grace or too above grace. You know, if you look at your life and think that there is no way that you could deserve grace after all, your, all that you've done, you're right. You're right. But I would encourage you, if you feel that way, to look at these brothers and sisters of faith as an example of how far grace reaches for those who have faith in Jesus. If he can save Noah and Abraham and Samson and even Jephthah, he can save you. If you look at your life and you think you're too above grace, 
because you are not nearly as bad as others who really need grace. Look at Jesus. If you fall short of his perfection, know that your goodness is filthy rags before a holy God. Plus, I can almost guarantee you feel a constant pressure to measure up, a constant pressure to be good enough, as though your life depends on it. But grace through Jesus reaches even to you in your self-righteous attempts at earning favor with God. And so rest in Jesus. Jesus is the object of faith that makes us one people, a people whom God shows extraordinary grace to as we have faith in him alone. And you know what that does? When we have faith in Jesus and we experience the grace that comes through that faith is it transforms us. It changes us so that we no longer see the world that we, in the ways that we once saw. We no longer act or live or think in the ways that we once did. It totally and completely transforms us. And so trust in the work of Jesus. Have faith in the work of Jesus alone. Have the same confidence that the men and, men and women listed here in Hebrews 11 had and trust what you cannot see. Do you know what that does? When we have faith in Jesus and we experience the grace that comes as a result of that faith is that it absolutely transforms us. So that now we no longer think or act or live in the ways that we once did. It makes us completely new. And so I call you, ask you to come and have that faith in Jesus and see God pour out his extraordinary grace on us as a result of that faith. Have the same confidence that the men and women that are listed here in Hebrews 11 had. For they trusted in what they could not see. They trusted in one who was to come. And I call you to now trust in the one who has come. And though they were flawed, and though we are flawed, faith is what provides us grace. And that grace is what transforms us. Experience that transformation by his grace through faith today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son who makes that grace uh, possible for us to experience through his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you for your spirit who awakens us to uh, the realities of these truths, brings us to life, and gives us the faith to trust in Jesus. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.